Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina Conversation. This episode features Sierra Horton McElroy. We're talking about Atomic Family, which is out on February 28th. Um, Sierra has usually writes short stories and essays, but this is her first book and it was, it was very well done. And I really like her writing style and I really enjoyed talking to her about the research involved. And we kind of got into a deep dive into like, what this family is dealing with. Uh, but that that's really what the whole story is about anyway. But either way, I'll let you guys get to it. Here is Sierra. So today we've got Sierra Horton McElroy. We're talking about Atomic Family. It is coming out on February 28th. Um, Sierra, thanks for taking the time today. Um, I finished this book a couple days ago, so it's fresh in my brain. And um, it was, it was something different because it's, you know, just with the, the nature of the setting and the environment and the high paranoia times, but you kind of like focus in on one family's experience. And I really thought your, I liked your writing style and and how it flowed and, but it was also just a different way to kind of approach this genre or like historical fiction. It was very, very, very cool. So, um, you know, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so to get started, can we um can you provide like a little summary of the book so that listeners can follow along with the conversation? Sure. So Atomic Family is what's called a circadian novel and that means that it takes place within the time frame of just 24 hours, so the plot is very compressed. So we start Halloween night 1961 and it's the height of the Cold War. The Soviets have just dropped the largest hydrogen bomb in history. And so there's kind of a panic and frenzy going on. And um, our story takes place in a small southern town that has a uh, nuclear plant where many of the men work. And so they feel that their town is a potential target um, in the Cold War. And so we have one family. The father is a agronomist. It's a soil scientist who works at the plant. And his wife, Nellie, is a pretty disgruntled housewife who has some serious issues. And then um, their son, Wilson, who is my favorite character, is <laughs> prowling the town and on the hunt for communists. And so it's about how this one family grapples with the paranoia of the era. Um, and then what happens with their fear? what is going on in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so does your um we could talk about your background too. Is this your debut novel, like your first novel? It is. Yeah, that's exciting cuz before you um had mostly been doing like short stories, essays, things like that. That's right. I did start, well, I started the book as a short story collection, actually, in undergrad, and then rewrote it as a novel in my MFA, so kind of a strange path into it, Mm. Um, but found that starting in short stories helped me understand the characters and, you know, the world I wanted to explore before committing to a full novel project. But yes, this is my debut. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Can we go in back like more into your background about kind of like, you know, where this idea came from and and kind of maybe go like, what made you decide to go ahead and flesh this out into something a little bit more? Um, and then maybe like, kind of maybe go into like the research aspect of it, too. Of course. Yeah. So it started as a short story with a little bit different of a focus. Um, the first short story I wrote was um, about the mother-son relationship a little bit more. And the little boy is going around the house and pouring out his mother's alcohol that she has hidden in different places as her coping mechanism. And she thinks that her, you know, little nine, 10 year old son doesn't know. Of course he does. (laughs) Um, And so it's, that's, that's the setting that I originally started with. And um, that came to me because my father told me that exact story from his childhood. And this story is is heavily inspired by my family's experience. My grandfather was a soil scientist Mm. at the Savannah River plant in South Carolina. Um, My mother, my grandmother um, did have some, some strong issues and um, took it out with alcohol and kind of took it out on the family. And so Mm. those do come through in the story. Obviously the ending is very different than in real life. Um, But, you know, those were themes that really, stuck with me. And as I started to explore themes of um, generational family trauma and historical setting, I just found that I couldn't get away from it. It kept coming back to me. Um, In the short story collection that I originally wrote, it moved between the eras. So we would see 
Dean, the scientist, as a child in the Great Depression, and then we would see Nellie as a child. And some of those flashbacks make it into the novel, so that context was really helpful for me to work through in separate short stories. But then I wrote one story in the collection, and it was about the father and son building the fallout shelter together, Mm. and the little boy is too interested. like He's too excited about it, too fascinated, and wants to make it a clubhouse. And the father's like, this is not, this is not a game. This is not to play. And he kind of know, he really knows that if a bomb came, it wouldn't do anything. It's just like mm-hmm. show. It's this whole public stunt that we did. And he's doing it to make his family feel safe. But in the moment, he realizes this is doing the opposite of that. It's actually making my child more afraid because he feels like he has to prepare for death as a kid. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that, I was like, this is, I think, actually what I want to focus on is the different ways that the parents and the child are dealing with the fear of the era. And I find that very similar to what's happening now with like various conversations. But what comes to mind for me the most strongly is school shootings, you know, the ways that we have to talk to our children um, about the reality of the world and how difficult that is. (laughs) Um, and yeah. there's no right way to do it, you know, um, you want them to feel prepared and safe, but you don't want to scare them. And I think that those are really similar concerns that parents had back then. So it does feel very contemporary to me in that way. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate um, because it's, how do you determine when is it appropriate time to bring that up? And then how do you explain why you have to explain it? Like, you know, like kids don't understand, like, I mean, they do to an extent, but their worldview is still relatively small where they can't really get the bigger picture. They just kind of know their immediate environment. And it's kind of like, well, what, why is, why would this, why would anyone do that? Like, exactly. It, and it's like, why? Well, there's no good answer. I don't know. Like, I, I, you know, parents struggle to understand it at the end of the day. And it's, yeah, it, I, I could t- definitely relate. And it is, um, Wilson did remind me of uh I don't know if you've you've seen Jojo Rabbit with the the ah, Takaiwa yes. Titi. Yeah. <laughs> where it's set in uh where he's like become a, a radicalized junior mm-hmm. um youth, Nazi youth or whatever they would call them. And it kind of reminded, you know, the American Cold War version of mm-hmm. of that kind of mentality of just like, no, you gotta he's cause he's keeping his eye out and he's like kind of just let just absorbed all this absorbed all this like this whole narrative and it's become his personality and yeah i really liked wilson too but at the same time i'm like oh my goodness child like you just chill chill out like (laughs) i think that's a great parallel though that i hadn't even thought of um you know i think the similar thing to jojo rabbit is the messages that are really geared toward adults get absorbed by children and They are listening, they are watching, they pick up on, you know, adult fears of the world and the Mm. propaganda is just so powerful to a child. Like they believe it so deeply. You know, people have asked me, is it hard to write about a kid? And I was like, it can be, but to me, kids are just obsessive. They're obsessed with things, whatever that is. It can be toys, it can be anything, but they're all in, at least that's my experience. So, I mean, I kind of took that to heart for him and he is all in with the propaganda messages. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's, and you kind of also relate to um, Dean in a way, the father, cause he's just like, Oh, what have, what, have, what have I done kind of thing. But at the same time, like, what is he, that's his job, you know, mm-hmm. like, what is he going to do? And this is a reality. And, and then, I don't know. I also felt for Nellie too, even though obviously she's a little problematic, but it was also like, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of feel for her. Like, I would probably grow resentful of secretive employment that, you know, cause she kind of, she understands it. She, she knows very much like why, but then she also, she's, she doesn't like it. She almost like doesn't, she doesn't want to accept it or she's like a little reluctant to, you right. know go with the flow or kind of like go with the status quo anyway. Like she's, she's getting tired of it. And I totally sympathize with, um, she would want something more or she would just, he sees these problems as very trivial, but to her, they're like, she's like, what? Like, no, like 
it's just like a slight to her you know it's like mm-hmm. she's very sensitive to like the disrespect or being left in the dark and and all that stuff because it's like well I'm, you know she doesn't want to just be um a housewife she doesn't you know she needs something more and um I, I like how you captured that and also kind of you like gave her a little more something to to be involved in mm-hmm. and it was fun to kind of read on to kind of get that side of it too with the um the women uh their the wives in their group and how they're just like yeah we're probably gonna piss our husbands off but oh well <laughs> like it's like you know because it's i like the switching between the different points of view because you could just kind of see the reader sees the bigger picture and could kind of understand it like well of course he's sworn to secrecy and of course she would get sick of that and of course this child would you know it'd be a little intense with the with everything so um i yeah it was just an interesting way to like kind of portray like such a like an like an intimate the intimate effects on like a the small family unit mm-hmm. like because they like um, on the surface yeah there's like a typical american family like they're not they're not doing anything like super extreme they're just they're following the path right mm-hmm. this is another way to say it they're just you know they're doing what what was expected of them and, and just what, what people did in those positions um, and how those families worked back then. But yeah. It was a really cool way to like explore that outside of the lab, outside of the military environment, outside of, you know, the government the politics and all mm-hmm. that, just kind of like really at the core, what implications that it have for like the American family, you know, and the whole national conversation into people's homes Exactly. Yeah, you you nailed it. Um, I think one of the things that was really important to me was that there wasn't one protagonist. It's not like Nellie is right or Dean is right. They both have their own version <laughs> of of what happens, and I think that that's what marriage is like. That's what life is like. Like, yeah, exactly. Stories, and so I kind of felt when writing that I wanted us to like be so. Like we believe Nellie when we're in her chapters and then we see Dean's and we're like, well, you know, yeah, she is kind of being controlling or he's kind of, being, you know, mean yeah. and things like that. So that yeah. back and forth was really important to me just for the integrity of the character and that neither one is villainized because, you know, I do understand like Dean's job is very secretive. Like my grandfather would have been in big trouble had he ever talked about what he did for good reason at the time, even though that was really difficult for a family environment. And so allowing that back and forth, I think was crucial, not only to the historical setting, but just to the escalation of the tension in the marriage um, and the family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And what a wrench to throw into it too, because it it is like an external force that's very much having such a dramatic, significant, like, you know, barrier or effect on, your home life it's like mm-hmm. don't bring your work home but it's like okay like what? how do you not yeah what do yeah. we talk about like what <laughs> they live such different lives and i think that dean really wants to tell her i think he's like aching to confide in someone outside of work about what's really happening because you know nelly is so convinced that oh the baby teeth is the sign of the problem you know when he's like it's not like the big problem i can't tell you about but it's so much bigger and so much worse. And I need you to just trust me. And then of course she's like, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like, I'm <laughs> doing what I know, you know, for my, for my kid and for myself. And it's, yeah, complicated. It is. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're writing like short stories, I'm guessing there's no real like space for that, right? You're not, is was it your first time kind of switching between points of view and like in one piece and, you know, maybe I want to explore like how that experience was for you. Like not just trying something new, but also kind of like having to, you know, get in the headspace mm-hmm. when you're starting a different chapter, like getting in that person's headspace, things like that. Yeah. I'm trying to think, I don't think I've done alternating viewpoints in a short story just because of space. Yeah, uh, I've done like segmented kind of lyric essay style where there's like braided sections, but typically they're like almost omniscient or like they're like, you know, different styles. Um, So the weird thing about this book for me, which is not how I've been writing the novel that will be going on submission soon, is I actually treated all three sections like a long short story. 
So I had like a whole long document for Nellie and then a whole long document for Dean. And then I just kind of braided them together. And that helped me feel one consistent because I could like go into Nellie's document and I wasn't coming out of another chapter time. It was just, we're working on her long story and it helped me feel like each one had its own arc and beat in it. Like they all have a climax to their own arc and story that then braids. And I kind of knew what the ending was going to be at this point. You know, this is like the the rewrite process that helped a lot, especially as a short story writer coming into writing a novel. Ugh, it can be so daunting. It's like, where do you begin, you know, page one out of 300, you know? Yeah. And I, I loved that. It really was an accessible way to write a novel for me because I was like, I can do a long short story, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 50 pages, 60 pages felt more doable. Um, and then when you do that three times, you have what starts to look like a book, you know? Yeah. That's what I did for this one. Yeah. Like any big lessons learned? Is that kind of like, like, where'd you get the idea to do that? Or did that just, just from your experience writing shorter stories, you just kind of felt like that was maybe the best the more familiar, more comfortable way of doing it. It just felt more natural. You know, I, so as I was writing, I still had a version of the novel that kind of had the semblance of where I wanted to cut. Um, And so I could like add the new sections in and kind of see it flesh out and make sure that I liked where it was lining up. Um, But as I drafted, I often went back to just its own piece, its own document of running content. Um, I don't know where I got that from. I may have gotten it from somewhere, but (laughs) um, I did, you know, workshop a prior version of this in my MFA and it got torn to shreds. And then I, Oh no. I rewrote it this way. Like I already knew the plot and that was easier too, because it was just kind of filling in what I knew was going to happen. But you did ask about voice too. I mean, to me, voice is character. Like you can't really separate them. It needs to read so distinct from other characters, you have to know immediately who's, who's head you're in. Um, and that just takes practice. I read a lot of work that's very voice heavy. Um, you know, I loved short story writers like Flannery O'Connor, who's the queen of this, where it's just so entrenched in viewpoint that you can tell a character's bias just by like their description mm. of a random thing. And I think that that is really important especially I think with a child's perspective, it needs to be so distinct, not only in like the things that's happening on the page, but like the word choices that they use, the pacing, because child thoughts can like ramble and go in crazy spirals. And I wanted to reflect that. And that comes through with other craft elements, just like pacing and syntax and word choice and diction and dialogue and all those types of things. Um, that need to feel so deeply entrenched in the headspace of a particular character. So mm. honestly, reading a lot is where, you know, that was really helpful. Yeah, I bet. Cause I wonder, yeah, I kind of wonder about that sometimes when I'm like reading different types of works. And I think it's, yeah, I think kind of authors, like, cause when you switch, when you have it from multiple points of view, like it almost, you're creating a, more work for yourself and requires, you know, that extra layer of like, thought and you know because you want to be able yeah like you said you want to be distinct you want to be able you want to make sure the reader can tell the difference um and also like just switching back and forth between just being that character and okay now we're what's going on with nelly in her day like how is she doing and then mm-hmm. really because work more work for you is i guess can hopefully create less work for the reader so that they can just keep the flow going and they don't have to try too hard to recognize um the different voice and i think that's what i did like about wilson and his chapters were because like you know a little innocent even though he's not doing innocent things it's like it's a little <laughs> more a little more troubling some of the activities or what's going on in his brain and how he's looking at the world and how he's like looking at people. (laughs) But then it's still trying to be spoiler free, but you know, when he gets like interactions between him and his friends too, or um, when he gets kissed on the cheek and he tries to play it cool. And that is, but his friend saw him and he's just like, it was, you know, and it was so funny because I think you kind of see the disparity, the troubles in the um, Nellie and Dean's relationship also as told through Wilson too. I thought that was really interesting because it was, 
he even said, and that's, I think that's why I kind of like, I recognize so many things. Cause he, he was like, what did he say? He's like, Oh, my mom, my mom lets me do things or something like that, where he's like, you know, after, and it's like, Oh gosh, but that's, that's it. Right. Like that's the classic, Oh, one parent says no. So you go ask the other parent and you mm-hmm. don't, you know, you keep that separate. You don't tell them that you already asked one parent what their answer was. And it was, you know, because Nellie and team can't be on the same page then, you know, how does that trickle down into their parenting styles and trying to, they it's, you know, everything's working against them. Unfortunately, they have to, they're, they know they have to be like a united front, but they have bigger fish to fry. And Wilson is like off on his own anyway. Like he's totally fine um entertaining himself like he's like he's like i've got i've got stuff to do too he's like i've got an important (laughs) job like i get you know he's like i've got important things to do and um so i just liked that unique kind of perspective of from his point of view and you know obviously it's important as well but it really just kind of shows the reader like just adding that extra layer into the marital woes that Mm -hmm. that you know the struggles between them as well yeah there's um I was kind of just thinking about this. There's kind of a thread of the game of hide and seek where he's looking for his parents. And there's these different flashbacks where Nellie remembers like kind of a postpartum episode where she told her little kid, her toddler, you know, go hide or I'll go hide. You'll come find me. And of course the little kid forgets what's happening and starts crying and she doesn't come out. She just like mm. stays by herself. And I think that's a very believable moment. Um, and then there's another scene later where he's much older, where he's hiding in Dean's office and Dean doesn't know he's there for a long time. And I feel like Wilson is just looking for his parents and they're not seeing him as he is. They are so distracted, not only by each other, because they have so much going on in their own marriage, but just by everything else that's happening. And they're tired. And I think yeah. that that's also just so believable. They're exhausted at the end of the day. And if Wilson wants to play by himself in the fallout shelter, Nellie's like, it's free babysitting. Go yeah. ahead. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't care. And he kind of slips through the cracks little by little, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. Cause it is. And I think it's definitely relatable to um, as horrible as it sounds. It just, it does, you know, as mothers, we both know like how all that like mental just not like, you know, just that whole postpartum and it it could last, like you said, like a couple of years even. And I think that's what a lot of people don't. I mean, I think the, the, the conversation around it is starting to become more realistic, but, you know, we still like people still need to talk about it just to like say like, yeah, I feel horrible about ignoring my child, but I'm like, I'm at zero percent right now. It's like, it's kind of like that where and it's totally normal. Like it's totally understandable. It's totally common. Fourth trimester is a thing. It's like, oh, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. The postpartum thing is, is delicately woven throughout it. Cause they wouldn't have really, I think called it that at the time, but if you're looking for it, you'll see that she was not okay after having her baby. And there's this scene that I found really hard to write. Cause I think when I was writing it or editing it, I think editing, I guess my son was being born and um, there's a scene where Dean has to leave for work and then he gets a call and he's like, where is the baby? <laughs> I don't hear him. And it's this really tense moment where he's afraid that his kid is in danger and he's not. Yeah. There. And he suddenly loses trust in his own spouse to care for his child, their child. And that is so gripping and heartbreaking, I think. Um and I, I think that that's one of the like fissure points in their marriage is just losing trust in the other's ability to parent the way that you want them to. And it's, it's so sad because she wasn't getting the help that she needed. It wasn't, I think in many ways her fault, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it is cause it's like, you kind of build that tension too. Cause you kind of, you feel Dean's like anxiety. Like you feel his concern and his worry. Cause, but then you also feel for Nelly cause you're just like, and then, yeah, with those flashbacks where he like kind of remembers that, but then she, I don't know, I guess I just relate to her a little bit just because I can't help, yeah, I can't help but sympathize with her. I can't help but, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, like I get it. Like some of her behavior was, uh, 
you know, and her attitude is a little problematic. But at the end of the day, you kind of like, I think she's reached the end of her robe. She's a dutiful housewife and Dean has like a cookie cutter way of what he thinks that he takes care of the job and then she takes care of the home and that like that those are their roles and she you know the reader kind of learns like she didn't want necessarily want that for herself or she's kind of like well i think a lot of it's just she wants maybe she feels a little belittled or she wants to feel important too or to feel like she's a partner Mm -hmm. um but she she definitely wants to feel important and I think that's partly why the protest is so important to her. Mm-hmm. I don't think she cares a ton about the big politics of it. I think she's right. there. You know, she knows it's important, but she's there for her to feel empowered and to feel part of something and to feel like she's doing something that matters and that will be remembered because, you know, she has this moment where she's like, Dean's work will be remembered years after he dies. What about me? I'm not doing anything. Mm. And it's this really difficult moment for her. And, you know, to me, the book at the end of the day is about what does it mean to protest something? And they're both trying to do it in their own flawed, faulty human ways. And that is hers. And I think her other way of protesting is financial, which is huge in the book and was very, very important to me. I had this weird moment at a TJ Maxx, actually. Like, I don't know what <laughs> I overheard this man and woman fighting with each other very publicly, very loudly about how much money she spent. And he was belittling her in public, like, you spend all my money. Like, I go to work every day, and I make all the money, and you go spend it on shit, you know, and all this different stuff. And she was just, like, shrinking. It was so sad. And, you know, financial abuse is very real, <laughs> And was so much more like part of the culture in the time mm-hmm. of this. So one of the parts that makes me cringe the most is when Dean's asking for like the money back that she spent, like from the grocery store or something. Um, and she's just furious <laughs> about all those little moments that are incredibly controlling that he considers, like you said, just part of the way that they have their roles and the way that they do their life. And so part of her protest is I'm going to go spend lots of money. And yeah. Tommy. <laughs> and again, I'm like, that feels like really believable. If you've been like pushed into the corner for so long in this one area, you're going to respond in kind and, you know, do what you can to feel like you're making a statement of some kind to get attention, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That was, and that was, yeah, that was very clearly her way of being like, you know, watch me now kind of thing. Like, fine. Like, this is like yeah like she just needed to do something some sort of rebellion but yeah like you said like a protest like she needed to do something to to make a statement i you know i've always been an advocate for like working women but it's also you know if if you're comfortable and that's you you want to maintain that lifestyle of where you're you know because raising the family is also a lot of work that i had no interest in (laughs) so i just i i grew up you know I I wanted to work. And then, so I just, I grew up with a working mom. And so it was very normalized for me. Whereas, you know, my husband, for example, he grew up with um, a mom in the home. She was, she was the one also kind of like taking, you know, babysitting the neighborhood kids, things like that. So it's, yeah, like there's trickles, there's these little examples here and there, but um, I think that's what kind of just why I relate to Nellie so much where she's just like, she was do I I really do believe that she was doing her best for so long and but she wasn't getting what she needed, unfortunately. And then on the other hand, it's like you see Dean and he just wasn't equipped to he had a lot more bigger the bigger things on on his brain, on his mind. And understandably, I think the narrative around working on your marriage just wasn't spoken out loud, you know back then like people just didn't talk about like no what everything's fine like you know and i think he has a little bit of a gaslighting problem i think he's very like if if she's like i had a difficult childhood he'd be like mine was worse you know like (laughs) and that kind of comes up a lot where you know he did go through a lot like in the book you'll see his flashback to his early childhood very very poor in the depression you'll see him at war but he uses that sometimes i think manipulatively like I have been through great suffering, great trauma. I deserve like peace and stability. The least you could do, you know, 
is just like keep everything running smoothly because I can't handle this. I have more important things. Mm. Uh, I've been through worse than you've been through. And (laughs) that's not her fault that she didn't serve. You know, she had a difficult childhood too. And I think he kind of realizes only at the very end how much he, he missed about her. Yeah. She suffered through as well. Um, that he he says he knew about, but he didn't really care about. Yeah. Nice were still part of her, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I like how you said that, like knowing and caring are very different. Like, yeah, you could say, Well, I know what you went through. I just it's what big deal? Like what you know, it's mm-hmm. yeah, and that's just adding on to like all of the, you know, troublesome issues with with their marriage and lack of communication and lack of understanding and support that they're not getting um, from each other. And just, it was also interesting to see kind of like Dean's inner monologue in relation to her. Cause he's just like, it's like, yeah, she's like, yeah, she's grumpy, but it's like, well, yeah, like, <laughs> like she's bored and <laughs> like, yeah, like, come on, dude. Um, so something that you did mention where it was like really difficult to, to write where, because one of my questions was like what what were like the most enjoyable parts to write and then what were the most challenging so would you say like that that kind of just comes to mind where I think it was when you were talking about the postpartum stuff with Nellie I think it was where you had a real challenge I think that's because you did mention it when you kind of talked about you said oh this was the the more difficult parts I think so yeah so anything else comes to mind um that was really really challenging for you yeah, Dean's voice was hard at first. Nellie and Wilson were so strong to me. And I wanted him to feel like sympathetic, but scientific. And that was just a really hard place to be. You know, I didn't want him to be so scientific that he had no emotion and no desire and no, you know, human qualities. And you see that in a lot of fiction, I think. Yeah. Scientist character kind of gets pigeonholed. Um, I think he is stern i think he like puts his head to the ground like he's like focused on what he's doing um but his voice was difficult to come by until i found his tenderness which kind of surprised me as i was first writing him like one of my um favorite scenes is he's like tucking wilson back into bed and they have this like really beautiful little moment as he's just having this ordinary time with his son and that really helped me like he has moments of being a good parent, I think that come through and he does love his son so much. Mm -hmm. Just doesn't always know what to do with him. (laughs) And um, that helped me see him as just a a complicated person. That was more, more than his job. You know, I didn't want his whole personality to be his job. And um, it just took some time to find the tone of that, that I wanted to come through. And so I did several different versions. I honestly tried one version where we don't have Dean's voice. We just get like, memos or different sections, but I felt like it was so disproportionately weighted. Like we never saw his perspective on some of the things with Nellie. And also we never got to go behind the scenes, if you will, at the lab. And I thought that that was important because as the reader, we get to go where Nellie never goes. She really, really wants to know what's happening at the bomb plant and we get to go there and we get to put on the hazmat suits and do the whole thing. Um, and I loved that, that we, as the reader, get to go where she longs to. And yeah, it just took a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to like work up the courage to like feel confident enough to take us physically into the bomb plant because everything else, you know, is easier to visualize and turn into fiction. Yeah, that's difficult to do when you're writing a story that's taking place in 24 hours too. Like, mm-hmm. Because you kind of, yeah, you just get this one day and how much you show us how much can happen in a day and how much can change in a day. But also that's still like not, that's not uh, a whole lot of opportunity to really show what, show what you want to show, right? Especially with that character with, and, and make him, you know, make it clear that he's a little more complicated than mm-hmm. just the, you know, the, the, the moneymaker, the breadwinner, the father, the scientist, you know, the top secret government job, all that. And you can let that side of him come out and you could show the reader more. Um, but yeah, it's it's difficult to do when the whole story only spans like 24 hours. And, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> very, very carefully, like, does this need to be in here? 
um, and kind of amplify the tension. And, you know, I think one of my other favorite things about Dean is his, how do I say this, how morally conflicted he feels about his job. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's one of my favorite scenes, and I keep saying this, but, you know, actually one of my favorite scenes is, <laughs> is sitting outside with his boss and they're talking about the effects of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And his boss had worked on the Manhattan Project and the original atomic bombs and just feels guilt like we could just never imagine and yet still works at this bomb plant and kind of has decided like my job is to pretty much keep this from never happening again like i'm trying to fix it from the inside and dean is wrestling with that like is that really the right answer for him what if you end up feeling complicit in more things that are going on um and i think that made him really complicated too um because yes, he's distracted from the home life, but what he's dealing with is affecting thousands, if not millions of people. And so he's feeling so um, morally conflicted and wanting to do the right thing. And I, I felt like that added to his deeper level of humanity too. Yeah, absolutely. I liked that too, that kind of those little moments where it's like the bigger picture. Cause yeah, like you said, like he wanted, it's so complicated, right? Cause it's like, what am I contributing to where at least I can be on the inside? It's crazy. Cause it's like, like with historical fiction, there are so many different ways to tell the story based on, based on who was involved, based on either who was involved or who was observing like their point of view or even their, their perception of it. I, I like historical fiction in that regard where it's like a different way to tell the story and, and the effects that, you know, these real life events have on like that more intimate level and, um, in ways that people like just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think about it. You just wouldn't think on it before. Um, I was just going to say someone could do a whole other novel in this same world and just pick a different perspective and it would be so different. Like the book from Hal's perspective, he's the, he's Dean's boss would look nothing like this. Oh, yeah. You know, he would see Dean as almost the enemy in the story. And I find that really fascinating, just like which perspective you choose to look at the book through, you know? Yeah. I was thinking of like the poor teachers, too. Like, what if they had to teach? And then how do they go about it? And it was just like, but that was a patriotic thing to do, right? That was just like either mandated or, you know, you wanted to raise patriotic Americans and help everyone be prepared. But I, I think that's a good point where, yeah, you can even write something from the women's who run the marches point of view or like the teachers. I think that would be fascinating point of view. It was fascinating, like different ways to tell the story. Did you have any um, parts that were like the most enjoyable that you had the most fun with that maybe was like kind of surprising? Like you didn't think you'd have fun with, <laughs> with it. I, um, well, Wilson was always fun, but I loved writing the protest scenes Okay. Yeah. Of them so much because it, it just, it was fun. It was feminist. It was exciting. It's true, by the way, mm. the women's strike for peace movement was, um, by many people considered the first kind of part of second wave feminism. It was the largest single gathering of women since the suffrage movement. I found that fascinating. Um, this was what rallied women in their day, um, by the thousands and thousands was nuclear war. Hey, this is a problem. You know, like we maybe should like stop this Cold War and they did so much good work. So I loved that. I did a lot of research on the women who were behind that. Um, And it was just really fun writing Myra. She is the woman who's kind of running the women's march. She is married to Hal. So that's part of the conflict is that it's mostly run by plant wives. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of research into women who were married to the original scientists um, out in the Manhattan Project working on um, the bombs that would be used in Japan and their initial shock about what happened because, you know, this is back in the 40s. And so she's based on some of those early women who were part of that that movement in that time. Um, and so is Hal. He's based on some scientists who were working on the Manhattan Project and then ended up feeling like, now what do I do? Um mm. So I love bringing that component in. And I kind of viewed Myra as like a foil to Nellie. Like Nellie looks up to her, kind of wishes she could be like her. 
is nothing like her, just like their lifestyle and everything. But I love that contrast. It was a moment of being like, this is what a woman can do. And this is the kind of power that she can have when she does something that's bigger than herself. And so I found that really enjoyable to read, to write. <laughs> and I hope the readers will too. Yeah, it was. That's so cool. Would that, um, was that, would you say that was kind of like one of the more fascinating things that you learned while you were researching for the story or, cause I know yeah. you said like your, your father your or your grandfather's, um, you know, life kind of inspired it. But obviously you had to do a whole bunch of other research that you just didn't, um, to really, oh, yes. you know, bring it about. So that, would you say that was probably one of the more fascinating things that you learned then? Definitely. I did not know about that at all until I started researching. And that's actually what made me pick, I think it made me pick 1961, which is when this happened. Okay. Um, it gave me something for Nellie to be part of and to do that would be um, kind of in contrast with her husband's work. And I just love that empowering moment that I think we've often really forgotten about. I didn't learn that in school. Like no one talks about all these things. You know, so I love that part of women's history. I did have to do a lot of research into nuclear waste management. Mm. <laughs> Never would have thought I would be deep diving on, but that was tough. I actually read some of my grandfather's now declassified reports, which was really cool to be able to use some of his own work. Because um, his life was, I mean, a very, very loose basis for us. <laughs> I gives me a concept and help me narrow in on the environmental angle that I wanted to explore in the book, which I would not have really known about without his life and his work. Yeah. <clears throat> That's also like part of the historical fiction of it where you, yeah, you get to like f- find these little corners of, again, other people's versions of the story or how it had that effect on it. And I like, yeah, cause I didn't know that either, but it would totally make sense. Right. Cause they're, their whole thing is like, oh, they're worried for their children. They're worried for their families. They're worried for the future. And because that's, these women spend all their, like their children are their world. And they're like, they see the threat or they are kind of anticipating. And it does sound scary. Cause it's like, or I heard you, you know, I heard you guys are experimenting on children's teeth. Like <laughs> that sounds so like cryptic and like, Yes. you know this is like oh don't take took wilson's teeth like what like i i would i would find that a little unsettling too even though it's like well, yeah. well that's what they yeah. didn't tell her i'd be so yeah. mad uh, <laughs> you yeah. are keeping this from me because you knew i would be upset but i just thought of something else too about the the historical stuff i found cool was um the town of ellington is a real town so mm. people haven't read the book yet um when they when the government picked the the place for this bomb plant. Cause in my book, this is a fictional version of a real plant, but um, they took the land by eminent domain and they picked a place that was inhabited by mostly black sharecroppers. This was the South in the fifties and sixties. And mm. they moved this entire town. Like when I say move the town, I mean, literally got rid of every building. They exhumed graves and moved them. I mean, it was a whole thing. People had no say, no choice, and they were devastated, obviously. Yeah. And um, there was a sign that they left there, something like, you know, it's hard to believe that our town will be used to make bombs to kill other people. You know, just like it's that was so horrifying to them. And yet this was just what happened. And I found that a really interesting part of history that could be a whole other novel written by another novelist is just the trauma of that experience. Yeah, the way Dean was saying, like, he imagined his parents would be there forever, like, in this, like, either in their house, they're growing up in that town, but then when they pass away, they're, they will still be there. And that, I think that was, like, kind of one of the realizations for him where I was like, oh, shit, like, you know, it was like, oh, wow, like, that was just such a profound realization, I think, for the reader, too, to be like, just the intense and just significant um, implications of just straight up moving a town. And mm-hmm. it's just so, yeah, it's just so crazy to me where, and yeah, at that point I was like, yeah, it was, it's heartbreaking. And, and it's just adds, adds the, another layer to, you know, how this government project and, and the progress that America was trying to make at the time for, perceived safety or just trying to stay ahead of the game it you know it just affected so many people and they like just straight up but there was nothing they could do about it 
and they just had to adjust like it was you know and not just physically but like emotionally and all that and that yeah it's such a like i it just it's it's funny i feel like there was so there would have been so much more i feel like maybe it's a it's a good thing that you limited yourself to 24 hours because i feel like you could easily get carried away with like if you if the the book covered like a larger time span because it was just such there's just so much going on and it was just so like a height like political tensions and the paranoia and um everybody was like on on guard like you know mm-hmm. on edge all the time and it was just yeah like you were saying there could be there could be so many more ways to tell the story same that tell that same 24 hour period yeah. And I love short novels. I mean, <laughs> my stage of life, like I prefer that. I I cannot crack open a thousand page book right now. I just can't do it. You know, I know it's for some people. It is not for me as a busy mom and author. And, you know, I don't know. I feel like it would have been cluttered. I knew what I wanted to say and we got in and got out. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Cause no, and I'm the same way, but I, it's funny though, because there are like I think at one point there was like a couple books where I was like, well, maybe I could do an audiobook. And then I look like Dune, for example. I was looking into reading that or maybe doing the audiobook because of like of the hype of the movie and everything. And then the audiobook is like 21 hours. And I'm like, oh, oh my goodness. Like in audio, like I'm a I'm like a read write learner, like audiobooks it depends like because otherwise i don't know and it's like i can't get back to wait when this last time i was like wait what happened you know i gotta rewind it or whatever or mm-hmm. all that and so i haven't like i did download the audiobook but i haven't started it it's just been in like my unread queue for like ever because i'm like i'm not ready for it yet and i know that i'm gonna spend so much time with this book and i'm it's gonna be heartbreaking to like be like, oh my god! I spent like ten hours, and I'm like barely halfway through. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, commitment. Oh my goodness, it is, it is, and so I'm just—I don't know. One day, I think I will, but then again, I might—I don't know. I think I would be perfectly content with having not dived into it at all ever because i know it's like you know i don't i don't commute a whole lot you know and i got my podcasts and like when i i read to write reviews and so i'm like i do it like when i'm working out i'll try to do it like when i'm maybe when i'm relaxing as long as you know the kids are fine or if i'm in a place where i could still like but yeah it's like that's where the short stories or the short novels come in because it's easy to kind of like set it down and then pick it back up when you're ready whereas yeah well like you said with like super long books it's like oh oh my goodness you know it's like you feel like it's like a little relationship it is a commitment like and you said. Cast of characters. this is all like just taste preference but i get lost even in like a medium-sized book if there's too many characters to follow and so i had like a list and i was like if we're past a certain number they get cut and just yeah. like <laughs> I don't know why the protest just got merged into one character because we didn't need too many and, you know, I just have to say, if like, if I'm like that, then there are some other readers like that and it'll find the right audience for it. But I just want to keep it focused yeah, know? and not get lost because if I'm confused and they're confused, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. If you have too many, like, you know, post-it notes or something like too many, like notes here and there to try to keep track of everybody, then yeah, maybe it's like, well, you should try to, you know. <laughs> try to relook at you know look at the game plan a little bit differently and um but it's true like too many characters and i think with just um you re- you don't want to pull the focus away from from the family right so it's like while those other characters are important because obviously they're part of the bigger picture and they play a you know a significant role it's still um it's still just very much as the atomic family it's very much about this family and um, what they're going through and what they're dealing with. So just a couple more questions before we wrap up. Um, this is always a fun question for me. I like to ask because it's really interesting to see like authors' responses. Um, so what advice would you give to Dean? What advice would you give to Nellie? What advice would you give to Wilson? Oh, my advice to Dean would be to spend time with his wife. Like, 
take her out to dinner, talk to her, um, just get to know her again because he looks back fondly on their early years, but he's not doing anything Yeah, toward that. And I think um, Nellie just wants quality time with him and wants to be seen and listened to. And he could have done a lot by just making an effort in little ways. It doesn't have to be extravagant, um, but you know, if he would have once like taken her on a picnic, even she would have just melted and felt important to him. Um, so that's my advice to him. My advice to Nellie, that is a good question. Like which direction am I going to pick? Um, <laughs> probably would be to talk to someone who's not Dean about what she's going through. Um, I don't, know what this would look like back then, but either a therapist or just a friend just to be open about what she's going through and get some help. Um, because I do think she does want Dean to like carry the weight of her emotional baggage also. And that he just, he can't, you know, so she needs someone else, whoever that else is to, um, listen to her and help her in addition to her husband, whether that's a doctor or therapist or whatever. Um, my advice to Wilson would be to, chill, (laughs) chill out, you know, do some kid things that have nothing to do with war. Just watch a cartoon. That's not the duck and cover turtle. (laughs) Be a kid and uh, yeah. Have a little fun. That's not dangerous fun. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah, just be a kid. Like just do (laughs) all the heavy stuff. You can worry about that when you're grown up. There's enough time. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So your first book, any future projects that you can talk about? Like, are you going to, do you feel like you can take on the world after writing a book after trying something new? And, you know, you did it? What are your thoughts? What are you working on? What's next? Yeah, well, um, I turned in my new novel to my agents. So I don't think I can really talk about it yet because it's mm. not on sub yet, but it is about Jack Kerouac, actually. So very, very different direction than this one. It's a contemporary novel. It's kind of a feminist reimagining of the road novel concept. So I'm really excited about that. That's been a really fun project. It's a huge departure from Atomic Family in many ways, but I love mm-hmm. I love that it's contemporary and fun and different and just allowed me to kind of explore a different part of the craft um, and do something that's a little bit supernatural, contemporary feminist. So I'm thrilled about that. Continuing to work on, you know, essays for the book. There's a ton of those and then short stories. And then I will be on maternity leave this summer. So I will not be starting a new novel this year, but yes, baby number two is coming. Oh, yay. So yeah, very exciting. Congrats. That's exciting. Yeah, you kind of want to ske- schedule things a little bit, <laughs> like, yes, like offset was, that. Yeah, I was like, I need to work on the book this well in 2022 before new baby comes. But yeah, I mean, me, you might go like dabble into that just to get like a break or just to unwind or find something fun for you. But yeah, as as you know, you'll uh you'll be a little preoccupied <laughs> for for the for you know well forever anyway. But you. <laughs> Like a little break in book tour too. We're doing a whole tour in the spring and then we're going to pick back up in the fall, but I have like a little baby hiatus, which will be really nice. It will. Yeah. And then you'll be ready to return to that part of your life where you're like, okay, I want to, I want to be productive now (laughs) or just do something like, yeah, that you're not, you know, you're not waiting hand and foot on another life per se. So Mm -hmm. um, no, I get it. That's exciting what was the process in like choosing the cover? Cause the cover is very cool and I like it. <laughs> well, uh, the publisher has a designer who did it and, nice. Laura, and she did a beautiful job. I love it. I love it. I think some of the inspiration behind it was like the, the media of the era and how important that is to the characters. Um, it makes me think of kind of the twilight zone, which I mm-hmm. think a little nod to, some of the weirder elements that are in the book, which we didn't really talk about, but there are some kind of weird, not really supernatural, but horror-ish elements, some of Wilson's chapters. And so I think it kind of gives a nod to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, because I don't know. It's it's interesting because I didn't really know. Um, I think like I briefly read, you know, the synopsis before uh, diving in, but it's like, you know, you always take the bit, you know, you always take it all in. You're looking at the, 
the little excerpts and then um the praise for the book you're looking at the cover and so i'm like i don't know what to expect i'm just like because it it was just very yeah it was like very scientific and yeah kind of like eerie a little bit like well what's okay what's going on here and it it is fitting like kind of once you get through um the entire story and you look back and you're like oh (laughs) you know you're just like oh and then but yeah i mean without you know trying to be spoiler free i I, that do you know the book it's like yeah it was like it was quick but then it like at the end i just i don't know what that like there's a term for it i feel like but when a reader finishes a book and you're like i wasn't i wasn't like expecting that outcome and I like kind of had to sit with it, <laughs> like kind of had to accept it. It was, it was like, oh, like <laughs> it's just like I only have sound effects to like express. Yeah, but you know, it's it's yeah. It was just like yeah, I I needed a minute because it's you know being a mom and and just being so unfamiliar with the the national like conversation and uh, during that time, like you know. Oh God, it was 70 years ago, almost like 60 years ago, I think. Right. If I'm doing my math correctly, it was just crazy. I I really like this story. And, but I just remember at the end, I was like, okay, it's like, I'm going to need a, I wasn't expecting I, yeah, you needed to let it marinate. I, I just wasn't expecting it. Um, which Go is nice, which I, yeah, <laughs> I don't mind at all. I'm not good at like which i'm fine with i don't always catch on or i don't always you know predict accurately what it would in all entertainment you know like tv shows and movies and stuff like that i'm not the one who's gonna be like oh it's it's gonna be this the sister like i'm not that person which i'm totally fine with because i think it adds you know it's my personal like entertainment experience that i get to enjoy for myself but yeah so it's yeah at the end of this book it was really like you know, it, it hits you in the feels. And um, I think at the end of the day, that's kind of what you, what you hope for a little bit, right? Like you, cause one of the, also one of the questions I was going to ask um, is like, what, maybe like, what do you hope that readers get out of the story at the end of the day? I think that the noise of the world can be so distracting from what really matters. Mm-hmm. And we can, you know, worry ourselves into a tizzy, we can be afraid of the wrong thing and be distracted. And I think, you know, I wrote this before COVID, but it started (laughs) to feel more and more real during COVID, you know, some of the themes about what, what are the voices that we're listening to, you know, and are we letting ourselves just get so distracted from like what's right in front of us and what matters most, you know? Yeah, exactly. And like, how do you filter out the extremists or, you know, it's, yeah, it's like, how do you, how do you do it responsibly and, and how, cause yeah, it's like one, you know, one point of view might be like, well, the, the women's people who march, um, for peace, they're like, they, they could be seen as extremists, you know, they could be like, okay, you guys are like overreacting a little bit, but you know, there's definitely some merit to like their concern and they're just trying to bring attention to it. And because they're, they're concerned, they're like, you know, and it's very legitimate. And it's like, that's an example of the opposite side of the story of the narrative of, you know, and it's, it's how I like, I, you know, it's very, you bring up a good point where it was like, with all the whole COVID thing, it was just in the age of the internet too. Like you said, there's a lot of noise out there and it's like, how, Yeah, how do you synthesize like what's happening to keep your family safe without becoming like extreme survivalist, you know, scared of everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, like there's, there's a balance there, you know, like you can do the right things. You can wear the mask. You can also like not tell your child you're going to die. <laughs> because, yeah. Like, like that's, that's kind of what I think about when, we have to hold this information that's happening in our world, especially as parents um, and kind of bear that for them. And, you know, like this might surprise you, but when I first wrote it, the ending was different. Mm. Um, and I felt like there were three possible endings because there are three arcs to the story and they all kind of might go one way the whole time. Yeah. And um, one of them does go that way. And so I really toyed with that, but you know, this is a book about, missing the point you know like being so distracted and so we had to go there 
Yeah. And that harsh reality of, yeah, just life hitting you in the face that doesn't care about what you're going through. Life is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then you just get just that new renewed sense of perspective where you're just like, yeah, you have to refocus on the job, the money, like what's really important. Right. And all this distraction, all that noise. And they had to learn, you know, they kind of learned the hard way a little bit at the end of the day, what's the most important. And, you know, you have to recognize that before it's too late. Um, I feel like we could go on forever about <laughs> all this good stuff. So, um, but thank you, you know, Sierra Horton, McElroy, Atomic Family, February 28th. This was such an enjoyable conversation. It was so cool to like pick your brain and, and just to see, I think the research part of it was like, just some, one of the more interesting parts too is just because it is historical fiction and um you know thanks for taking the time and and um talking with us today and you know i want to wish you best of luck as like you continue your your press and your promos and you know your future projects and also you know your upcoming addition to your family oh thank you so much and thank you for having me this was great you you got everything that I wanted to come across. So <laughs> yeah, that's the bookworm in me. Um, but I love it. I love reading, obviously. Um, do you, oh, before we sign off, um, do you want to share your like uh, website and social media, all that stuff? For sure. Um, my website is sierramcelroy.com. Very easy. I have all my event info on there if you want to see me at a reading. Um, I'm on Instagram at Sierra H McElroy and I'm on TikTok at Sierra Writes, So you can find me on whatever platform that you prefer. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much once again, um, Sierra Horton McElroy. And yes, like I said, Atomic Family, February 28th. Go check it out. Thank you so much. And there you go. That was Sierra Horton McElroy talking about her debut novel, Atomic Family. Um, as always, you know, check the show notes to find links and follow her on social media and her website, see the other stuff that she's got published and also where to buy Atomic Family, the book that is out on February 28th. Please rate, review, subscribe, continue following my book reviews on thenerdcantina.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, the Nerd Cantina and Cantina Book Club to stay up to date on which authors that we're featuring in this, these Cantina conversations. As always, thank you so much for listening.